0: what does God look like? It's a question that has been debated endlessly down through the centuries, and even today, many people have their own ideas of who God is and what He is like. But we need to have more certainty than that. If we are going to put our faith in God, if we're going to depend on Him for our salvation and commit ourselves to following His will, then we need something more certain than our or somebody else's imagination. We need to know for sure what God is like. The amazing news is, that as John declared in the second part of his remarkable introduction to his gospel, we can have that certainty. Because of Jesus, we can know for sure who God is, And what he is like. And even more crucially, because of Jesus, we can also know God personally in our lives. So we're going to read uh, from John chapter 1. We read the first five verses last week and we had a good look at them. But we're going to read from verse 6 down to verse 18. So John chapter 1, verse 6 down to verse 18. From the fullness of His grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made Him known. We all find it much easier to trust in somebody that we can see for ourselves. In a world where people tell lies, stretch the truth, seek to deceive and manipulate eh, for their own advantage, we're all cautious about believing every claim that is made. So people say things like, seeing is believing. I think we're all a bit like Thomas. The disciple who said to the other disciples, when they told them about the resurrection of Jesus, unless I see, I will not believe it. But the problem is that when it comes to God, as verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. Up to the time of Jesus' birth, nobody had stood before the Almighty God and seen the full revelation of who He is and what He is like. Yes, of course, there have been glimpses of who God is. God had revealed Himself to His people through creation, through the law, through visions and dreams, through His prophets, through His acts of deliverance. But these were all partial revelations. And I think in this space left by this partial knowledge people made up their own ideas and concepts of who God is. I'm sure even today we've heard people say well I think God is like or I don't think God would ever do as if We were the ones creating God in our image. But Jesus came to change all of that. No longer would we need to accept a partial revelation from God or the imaginations of others. Now we can see God for ourselves. Because God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him again, in verse 18, eh, John again describes or, or declares the full deity of Christ here. Jesus is God, the one and only. And that is why, the word, as the word of God, Jesus is the final and full revelation of God. Later on in this gospel, one of the disciples, Philip, asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. As we read through this Gospel, as we look at what Jesus did, as we listen to what Jesus said, we are seeing God. This is what God looks like. This is what God says. This is what God does. He is exactly like Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the full reality of who God is and what he is like. So because of Jesus, we don't need to wander in the dark anymore. We don't need to be confused by all the different creative and, and fanciful imaginations of other people. We can just look, to, look, at, look at Jesus. And we can know who God is. But even more of that, more than that. When we look at Jesus, we don't just find out about God. We can look to Jesus so that we can know God personally in our lives. And this revelation of God through Christ began with a ministry of preparation. Have a look at verse 6. There came a man whose name is John. Now this is a little bit confusing bit because this isn't John who writes the Gospel of John. Okay, this is the guy who we usually call John the Baptist. Of course, that's because a part of his ministry was to baptize in people in water to declare the repentance of their sin. And here, the Apostle John emphasizes a number of different aspects of this guy's ministry. First there is John's commission. He was a man who was sent from God. John the Baptist did not speak on his own authority. He did not share his own ideas. He didn't just come and just follow his own agenda. Instead, he was simply obeying God's call on his life. And as we'll see in this gospel, Jesus makes exactly the same claim in his life. He was doing what his father told him to do. He was following his Father's will right throughout his life. So God honouring ministry is always done in obedience to God's call in our life. Obedience and honouring God always go together. In that sense we're not kind of volunteers in God's kingdom. We're people who have been called and who obey. Secondly, there's John's mission mission. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. We'll see this in more detail next week. John's ministry was to witness to and to testify to the reality of who Jesus is. His role was to point people to Jesus. Actually, this idea of witness is a key theme in this gospel. You can have a look out for it because that word witness that's here, is the Greek form of the word from which we get the English word martyr. okay? Somebody who witnesses something by giving up their life. And this word witness, it occurs as a noun, as a verb, over 40 times, I think it's something like 47 times, just in this gospel. It's often translated testimony or testify. So as we go through it, just look out for how many times testimony, testify comes up. In this gospel. John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus. John the Apostle is a witness to Jesus. And our role is to do exactly the same. It's to testify to those around us about who Jesus is. Remember Jesus commissioned to us in Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But did you know, John's? Did you notice John's, gospel, eh, John's goal in this Christ-centered ministry? Verse seven. So that through him all men might believe. John did not preach to entertain or to amuse. He didn't even preach simply to educate or inform. Like the Apostle John himself, he preached about Jesus so that people would put their faith in Jesus. And that through that faith they would be saved. That was John's goal. But as he did this, fourthly he expressed amazing humility. He said about Jesus in verse 15, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Uh, John was older than Jesus. John started his ministry before Jesus. But he knew that Jesus was greater than he was. And so John, John didn't try and attract people to follow him. Instead he sought to point people to Jesus. So verse eight says he himself was not the light, he came only as a witness there's that word again to that light. So John the Baptist, as we'll see in next week in even more detail, is a great example to us to what it mean, to what it means to be a member of God's kingdom is to respond to God's call to point people to Jesus so that they can put their faith in Him. It's not to attract people to us. It's not people so that people can say, wow, aren't you amazing? It is so people can say, aren't, isn't your Lord amazing? John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, but he's a great example for us to follow as well. But why did John do that? Why did John deflect the attention from himself and point people to Jesus? Well, of course, it's because of who Jesus is. It's because Jesus is the Christ. Only Jesus is the true light of the world, as we were saying about earlier this this morning. Only Jesus can save us. And that's because of the unique identity of Jesus. Remember last week? In chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is equal with the Father and with the Spirit. He is our Creator and our Sustainer. He is our Lord and our God. And yet, verse 14 that we read this morning, says the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. This is the incredible, the mind-blowing news of the Incarnation. The Holy One became flesh. God became human. The Creator became part of His creation. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present One Became fully wrapped up in a tiny, frail, weak, vulnerable body. As much as it blows our minds, John wants us to come to the realization that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so God has come to be with us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's another really important truth that's going to be developed throughout this Gospel. The phrase, His dwelling, it actually literally means He tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, God directed the people of Israel to make a special tent. The tabernacle, or the tent of meeting. As the place where God would dwell with his people, and where he would meet with them. So, Exodus chapter 25 says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, this is the Lord speaking, and I will dwell among them in a tabernacle. And later on, this tabernacle was, of course, replaced by a more permanent structure. It was by the temple, built by Solomon. And Solomon said, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. This was a place where God met with his people and he lived among them. But this temple was of limited access to God. Yes, some people could come closer than others, But nobody could stay in the innermost part of this temple, in the most holy place, the place of God's intimate presence. Nobody would be able to stay there. But as the Word became flesh, Jesus came close to us. He came to be our Emmanuel, our god With us. He came to be our tabernacle. He came to be our temple. In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 19, we'll see that he pointed to this reality. When he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, people misunderstood him to think that he was talking about this building that they were all standing in. A building of stone and and wood. Jesus was talking about the reality of his body as the temple of God. The place where God dwells. The place where God meets with his people. Of course, his body would be destroyed. Because most of the people would reject this truth. They would reject the idea that Jesus is both God, fully God and fully man. That he is the word made flesh. Verse 10 says that. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. When people saw Jesus, they did not accept his identity. They didn't see him as their creator. They did not realize that he was Almighty God. I think one of the reasons is because in appearance, Jesus didn't look like anything special. Isaiah wrote about him in Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I know that when uh, Hollywood directors are looking for somebody to play the, 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 the person of Jesus, they're looking for somebody who's really handsome or got deep blue eyes or, or long flowing locks and stands out just in his appearance. But Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus looked like just an ordinary bloke. Just Jesus down the road. So people didn't recognize him. Even his own people, even the people of Israel didn't recognize him. For centuries, the people of Israel had been waiting in expectation of their Messiah. And yet verse 11 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And throughout this gospel, we're going to see this refusal of the people of Israel to receive Jesus for a whole host of different reasons. They rejected him, for example, because of where he was from. They rejected him because of his challenge to their traditions and their religious systems. They they rejected him because of his refusal to conform to their ideas of what the Messiah should be like. They rejected him because of his exclusive claims. They rejected him because he confronted their sin. They rejected him because he threatened their position. Again and again they rejected him. And we're going to see that again and again through this gospel. This gospel is a gospel of conflict. And it will culminate in the cries of the crowd to crucify. Crucify. It's so important for us to see this. Because Jesus is going to tell us that everybody who follows him is going to face the same stuff. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. To follow Jesus means following him in the way of rejection and ridicule and persecution suffering. For every one of us. Of course there's also amazing blessings aren't there? It's not all struggle. Because Jesus did not reject the world that rejected him. But willingly laid down his life on the cross. We who accept him have received the most amazing gift of salvation. Verse 17. Jesus said the law was given through Moses. This was an amazing gift to the people of Israel. It gave them a a revelation, a limited, a partial revelation of who God is. And limited access to God through the temple and through the, the sacrificial system. But the law was powerless. It was powerless to really set people free. To set the people free from sin or to secure their relationship with God, and that was because of our sinful nature. Because nobody could keep the law. And so under this law, there was an amazing gift. In the end, everybody stood condemned before God. So Paul says in Romans three twenty, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law we become conscious of sin. But when Jesus came, he didn't come to bring the law. He brought something new. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring the full revelation of God and the full riches of God's grace to a lost in the dying world. And so through this grace, a brand new offer is given to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name. It's an offer to everybody. The law was given to the people of Israel, but the offer of Jesus is made to everybody and anybody, whatever their race, whatever their background, whatever their history, whatever their reputation we're going to see in this Gospel that this offer is for people like uh, Nicodemus, the reputable Pharisee, as well as for an outcast Samaritan that Jesus met at a well. This offer is for everybody. And all we need to do is just accept it, to receive it through faith in Him, to receive Jesus, to accept Jesus as the Son of God, who loved us, and who gave himself for us on the cross. The gospel is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And when we do that, we receive a brand new status. Verse 12. To those who who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. Because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God. We were God's enemies. We were separated from Him. We were outside of His kingdom. Barred forever. But if we put our faith in Jesus, then our status has been changed instantly and forever. Because we'll be adopted into God's family. We'll be accepted as His child will be welcomed into the intimacy of His house so that we can live with Him forever. So John 14 says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. There's the idea of home again, of dwelling, of temple. Jesus did not just come To be God with us for the 33 years that He walked on this earth. He came so that we could have God dwelling with us now and forever. And then ultimately our hope is, as Jesus said in John 14 and 2, that in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place. A place for you. A home for you. And we can have the confidence in this. Because this change of status, from being an enemy of God to being a child of God, to being an outcast, to be right in the very heart of God's family, is not something that we work for. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we need to hold on to. Rather, it's the supernatural work of God. See this in verse thirteen? We are children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. We see this, this truth developed much more fully in chapter three of John's Gospel. But this is how we become part of God's family. It's not something that we inherit from our parents. It's not something that we have to work for and eventually achieve. It's not even something that we need to hold on to with all of our might. Instead, it's the free gift of God that he gives because of his amazing grace. And this is what the Apostle John had experienced for himself. When John writes of all these things, he's not describing some theoretical idea. This isn't something that he learned in in a theology textbook or going to university and studying it for himself. This is something that John experienced in his own life. He had been an eyewitness of the amazing revelation of the word became flesh. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John saw it with his own eyes. He saw Jesus. And he had received this wonderful salvation. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. John, with, along with everyone who had received Jesus, had had that experience of like a, like waves on a shore, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, being blown away by God's goodness to him. And so he wrote this gospel so that all of us could experience that for ourselves. Remember verse thirty-one of John chapter twenty. He wrote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is the great news of the gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So we can see the reality of who God is and through faith in Jesus we can know the certainty of being a child of God and the security of knowing that we have eternal life with God.